I'm grateful for our Outreach Tuesdays, all we're able to do for the community. Thank you to those of you who serve, uh, who spend your Tuesdays here on campus helping those uh, who are in need, uh, who need food or clothes or anything else. And want to thank those of you who give uh, generously to this church and our weekly offering because that allows us uh, to be able to do ministry like this to our community uh, and for those who are in the most need. Now, if you have a Bible with you, I want to open up to Exodus chapter 7. That's where we're going to be tonight. Exodus, or tonight, I keep saying that. This morning. Um, this will be this morning. Uh, Exodus chapter 7. Uh, as we continue a teaching series we started last week called Overcoming obstacles. Now, now the series is really identifying what's true for most of us in the new year. I, I think most of us, whether you're a resolution or goal type or not, in the new year feel this fresh energy or a fresh wind or a new beginning. And so you try to move forward, and sometimes we try to move forward in the things of God. We try to move forward by faith to the life God has called us toward. And what often happens is once we decide we're going to move forward, we immediately seem to hit these obstacles that keep us from living the life God has called us to and living a life worthy of the calling we've received. And so this teaching series... It's going to take us through the story of the exodus from Egypt, of the people of God leaving Egypt, and we're going to look at the obstacles they faced along the way. And if you were here last week, Pastor Sean kicked off the series by talking about the excuses we make along the way, and today what we're going to see is another set of obstacles that the people of God face and that we will face in our journey as well. So Exodus chapter 7 verse 1 is where we're going to begin. Here's what it says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, so to tee up the story, for those of you who weren't here last week or aren't familiar with the Bible, you've got two individuals in this sentence. You have the Lord. This is God. And yet God's name is not God. God reveals himself as the Lord. Now the word Lord, when you see it capitalized in your English Bible, is the word, the Hebrew word Yahweh. Yahweh is the name for God. And the word Yahweh in Hebrew means I am who I am or I will be who I will be. The idea behind this name of God is that God is who he is. You can receive him as he is. You can reject him, but you most certainly don't get a vote to who he is. He is who he is. And this God who says, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, is speaking to Moses. Now Moses is born in Egypt, born in slavery. The Pharaoh tries to wipe out all of the young boys and Moses is miraculously saved. He grows up in Pharaoh's household and then goes out into the wilderness as an adult and has an encounter with a burning bush where God introduces himself to Moses as Yahweh, the God who is who he is, and he gives Moses a mission. And that mission is you are to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, ruling over the most powerful empire the world had ever seen to this point, and you were to tell him that you were to let my people go. That's the story, that's the setup, the context for those of us who aren't familiar, and here's how the story will begin this morning. Exodus 7. Verse 1 says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. You and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. So the Lord Yahweh gives a mission to Moses. He says, You are to go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, Well, I don't speak that well. And God says, No worries, your brother does. I'll have him speak for me and for you. They're supposed to go to Pharaoh and they're supposed to demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go free. But then you'll notice this very interesting little phrase here that happens um, up on the screen. You'll see it underlined. Yahweh, God, says to Moses, hey, when you speak to Pharaoh, it'll be like I'm speaking to Pharaoh. Now, I don't want you to miss what that means. What that means is the conflict we're about to see coming, the conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, isn't really a conflict between Pharaoh and Moses, although it looks that way. It's really a conflict 
between Pharaoh and God. In other words, the problem that Pharaoh is going to have with what Moses is saying isn't really about Moses at all. It's that Pharaoh has a problem with what God is saying. Moses walks in obedience. Pharaoh doesn't like it, has a problem with Moses, but the problem is really with God. And here's why this is important for us to stop and notice right at the beginning, because this is what the conflict is all going to center around. The entire conflict of the Exodus, the entire tension of the story here is built around the fact that Pharaoh doesn't like what God has to say. And Moses is walking in obedience and he's getting hated because he's doing what God has to say. And this is not unique to Moses. This is true for Moses, but it's true for every other believer through the Old and New Testament, throughout all of history, who have tried to walk in obedience to God. And this morning, what I want you to see clearly as we teach through this text is that everyone who obeys God will face opposition from three places. Everyone includes you, it includes your kids and grandkids, it includes your parents and your best friend. Every single one of us who decide we're gonna walk in faithfulness to God and obedience to his commands in the scripture are going to face opposition from three places. These are the three ancient and eternal enemies of God that the people of God have always been up against. The first opposition we're going to face is from the world, from the world. Now, when we say the world in the Bible, it has two meanings. The first is just meaning everything. God created the world and God loves the world means God loves everyone and God created everything. But then in the New Testament, what we're going to see is this this phrase, the world, is actually used in a negative connotation. It's meant to represent the powers and the structures and the systems of humanity that have set themselves up in opposition to God and in rebellion against his rule. Maybe for you, the world and the opposition you're facing means an individual person. Maybe there's someone in your family, someone in your business, someone on your street, or someone in your life who opposes you because you're a Christian. They mock and belittle you, they exclude you, they harm you, they seek your destruction because you follow God. Maybe for you it's not an individual, but it's actually a system of people. Maybe it's an organization or a government or a business, it's media, it's culture that sets itself up against you because you're a Christian. When Christians face the scorn and the ridicule and the hatred of the world and of popular figures and of people on their television screens, this is the world and this is the opposition we face. The first opponent, the first opposition that you will face if you are obedient to God is the world. The second opposition you will face is called the flesh. Now, when we say the flesh in the Bible, we don't just mean your physical body. We mean something more deep and profound and spiritual. It is the part of you that has not yet been redeemed, the part of you that's not yet been made holy, this old dying part of you that's scratching and clawing and trying to pull you down. And here's what I know. Even if you aren't a Christian or believe in God at all, you know what this is like. Because here's a question I have for you. Isn't it true for you um, that when you have tried to improve in any area of your life, when you have tried to make progress in any area of your life, has anyone gotten in your way in life more than you have? And we laugh because we know, we know that oftentimes we say, I'm never gonna do this again, except for this one time. I am done with this behavior after this next time. I am going to eat healthier. I am going to save money. I am going to pray more. I am going to do these things. And ultimately, your worst enemy in some of this progress is you. And the Bible has a word for that. And that word is the flesh. It's that part of you that doesn't want you to obey God. It's that part of you when you say, I'm going to forsake this sin or this addiction or destructive habit that wants you to go back to it. 
It's the part of you that, that when you say, I want to learn to pray and fast and seek after the Lord that tries to pull you away from it. It's the part of you that when you say, you know what, in this new year, I want our marriage to be better. It's not been as good as it could be. I'm gonna sacrifice for the sake of my spouse. Your flesh is the part of you that wants you to be selfish and go back to your old patterns. See, the flesh is the part of you that gets in the way of you, gets in the way of what God has called you toward and what you desire. We'll face opposition from the world. We'll face it from the flesh. And the final enemy, the opposition we will face is the devil. The devil. And the scripture is called Satan or the accuser of the brethren. He's the deceiver. He is that ancient serpent in the garden, the devil. Now I believe there's a literal devil. I believe he hates you and he hates God and he wants to steal from you. He comes to kill and steal and destroy. He's not charming. He's not a little red man with a pitchfork and horns. He is so much worse than that. There is a real devil who stirs up hatred and wickedness and sin and rebellion in this world because the devil hates you and the devil hates God because he wishes he could be God, but he cannot. This is the devil who stands against you. People tell me all the time, it's crazy in 2024 with all we know of the world for you to believe in a devil. And I say the exact opposite. With all I know of the world and all of the wickedness and evil that goes on all the place, I think it's crazy not to believe that's animated by something or someone. See, there's a devil in this world. He hates you, he hates God. And he will use every strategy in his book to try to throw you off course, to get in your way, to oppose you growing spiritually. Uh, so many people focus on things they've seen in movies and films, and sure, that can happen. But I believe the devil's going to use four strategies in your life to oppose you. The first is deception, which is the battle for your mind. Satan will lie to you. He will tell you things that are not true about you or true about God and get you through that deception to make choices that lead you away from the Lord. Deception is the battle for your mind. The second is discouragement. The devil will discourage you and tell you there's no hope. You might as well not pray because it didn't work before. You might as well not try to read your Bible because you failed last year. Don't try to improve your marriage, or your relationship with your son. It's not going to work anyway. Discouragement is the battle for our heart. So deception is the battle for our mind. Discouragement is the battle for our heart. Uh, temptation is the battle for our strength, for our flesh, where we know what we're supposed to do and we're tempted to do otherwise, where we know what is wickedness and an offense before God and yet Satan tempts us into it. That's what temptation is. So you've got deception, you've got discouragement, you've got temptation, and then finally you have accusation, which is the battle for your soul. It's this thing that Satan does where he throws your sin in your face, says you're a sinner, you've fallen short, God has no business loving you. Why would a God love someone like you who's rebelled so much and fallen so short? Listen, hear me clearly that you have three enemies, three oppositions that will constantly come up in your life. You have the world, you have the flesh, and you have the devil. And we need to understand these opponents. We need to understand how they get in our way if we're gonna move forward to the life that God has called us toward. This morning, what I wanna offer you is five observations about opposition. I wanna show you five observations through this text in the story of Exodus that'll help us understand how to move forward in the face of the opposition we face from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse two says this, this is Yahweh speaking, you are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. So, so here's what happens. God gives a clear mission to Moses and Aaron. You are to go to Pharaoh and you are to make a demand on him. To say God tells us that God's people are to leave Egypt and they are to go into the promised land. You are to let my people go. And you don't even need to know the story of the Exodus to know that Pharaoh's not gonna be so keen on this idea. 
He's got hundreds of thousands of people enslaved. And you think Pharaoh is going to just go, oh, go for it. Knock yourself out. I didn't really need the help anyway. This isn't what Pharaoh's going to say. There's going to be a conflict here. He's going to be opposed here. This is not going to be an easy situation. Moses knows this. Aaron knows this. And God sends them in anyway. And what we're going to see in the story of Moses and of Aaron as they confront Pharaoh is the same story that happens for the people of God all throughout history. So the first observation I want to make is this, that, op- uh, uh, that opposition is normal. Opposition is normal. Meaning a normal part of the life of faith, for us, a normal part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we are going to face opposition. I think some Christians get it into their minds that what they need to be if they love Jesus and they follow Jesus is sort of these great, nice, happy people who no one's ever mad at. And they think if I'm truly like Jesus, it means no one's ever going to dislike me. They think to themselves, if I live in love like Jesus, no one will ever misunderstand me, hate me, oppose me, or try to harm me. And if that's what you think, you need to go back and read the story of Jesus. Jesus was misunderstood. He was hated. He was oppressed. He was, he was crucified. He was sentenced to death. Why? Because he was walking in obedience to his father. And the same thing is going to happen with you. If you choose to walk in obedience to God, opposition is something that should be a normal part of your life. There are going to be people who oppose you because you walk with God. Now, let me try to be clear here. Um, I think there is a way of walking with God where you are walking in humble obedience before the Father like Jesus did, and people will oppose you. And then I think there is a way of walking with God where people do not oppose you because you are walking in humble obedience to God, but because you are being, and this is a theological term, a jerk. <laughs> All right, so, so, so hear me. If you are just kind of have this personality where you just want to fight everyone and be mean with everyone, and you know the scriptures, and you know what God said, and I'm right, and they're wrong, and you're just rude and harsh and critical and a jerk, and, and, and then people hate you, you don't get to throw up your hands and say, Jesus experienced this too. That's not how this works. We are called to be a people who walk in humble obedience to God. And out of a humble obedience to, this is what God says, I'm going to walk in this, we should expect as a normal part of life, opposition. Like Jesus himself said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what he says in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice Jesus didn't say, you've heard it said, love your, enemy and, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, just don't have any enemies. Make sure everyone likes you. Make sure no one misunderstands you. Make sure everyone agrees with you. And whatever you do, just fit in so no one's ever negative about you. He doesn't say that. He says, love your enemies, which is an assumption that you're going to have enemies. And so I think we need to build this into our expectation of life. This should be something we expect and anticipate as a normal part of the Christian experience. Three things I'll tell you. Number one, when we obey God, we should expect opposition from the world. Can we as a church commit to no longer being surprised or outraged when the people of the world say nasty, untrue, terrible things about Christians? Can can, can we as a church just understand that the media, the government, people in power, people who have influence, people on television are going to say all kinds of things and this isn't a shocking, surprising thing to us? It's normal. 
It's normal, and what we should expect, we should expect the world to oppose those who walk in humble obedience to the Lord. Number two, when we obey God, we should expect opposition from our flesh. If you're trying to move forward and grow spiritually in 2024, you should absolutely anticipate that your flesh will rage against you. If you are trying to grow in prayer, you should absolutely anticipate your flesh distracting you every time you go to prayer towards something else. If you're trying to turn from an addiction or sin, you should absolutely expect your flesh to try to draw you back into that very addiction you're trying to break free from. You should expect it. You should anticipate it. And finally, when we obey God, we should expect opposition from the devil. We should expect him to be lying to us and deceiving us. We should expect discouragement to come along the way. We should expect temptation. And we should expect the accusation of our sin before us. This is something we anticipate as a normal part of the Christian life. In verse three, it says this, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I will multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Now what God's doing here is a fascinating thing. He's calling his shot. He's saying exactly how it's going to go. I'm gonna send you to Pharaoh. I'm gonna harden his heart. I'm gonna show all kinds of signs and wonders in Egypt, but he's not gonna listen to you. And what I want you to notice is that God is not simply predicting the future. God is an active agent and player in this entire story. And when I say that, I mean this underlined thing here on the screen where it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, what God is saying is I'm not just gonna sit back and watch this all happen. I'm going to step in and I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, if you don't know what hardening heart means, just imagine my three-year-old son when I tell him that he cannot do the thing he wants to do. We tend to get this, the fist ball up and he goes, mm! that's hardening your heart. Where you are just angry, where you're expressing it, where you're just standing there, you are stubborn. This is what God is going to do to Pharaoh. Now, when I preach on a text like this in the scriptures, invariably, someone will ask me, whether walking up or an email, you, you really don't mean to say that God interfered with Pharaoh's free will, right? He has free will. He gets to make choices. And what I tell them is, I want you to know exactly what I'm saying is that God interfered with Pharaoh's free will. That's exactly what this says here. That God steps in and they say, but what about our free will? Don't we have free choices? You have free choices and God has the free ability to reach in and do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, to whomever he wants, for whatever reason he wants. That's what we believe about God. And here's what I want you to know. That this is not the only time this happens in scripture. It says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And yes, it'll say later that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But not before God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But it happens all throughout the scriptures. Let me show you Joshua chapter 11, verse 20. It says, for it was the Lord himself, Yahweh, who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so he might destroy them totally. In other words, God hardens the hearts of Israel's enemies. I'll show it to you in Judges 9. It says, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. And God is stirring up people. He is changing their hearts. It says in Psalm 105, the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them too numerous for their foes whose hearts he turned to hate his people. Isn't this fascinating? That God actually hardens hearts, he stirs up hearts, and here he is turning hearts to hate his covenant chosen holy people. Here's what Paul says in Romans 9 as a principle in reflecting on all of this. He says, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. 
And the temptation for all of us is to go, okay, well, if God can just step in and do that, then what the heck? There's nothing we can do about that. How can we possibly respond to a God who steps in and can change us and harden our heart and changes our heart? We want to hold on to that free will, but here's where you're lucky. Paul anticipates this objection. Here's the objection he gives. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? So that's the objection a lot of people have. Okay, if God can just step in and change my will, if, I, if my will is not free before the Lord, if God can just step in and do that, why would God possibly accuse me of this? Why would I possibly be responsible? And here's Paul's response in verse 20. But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay pottery for special purposes and some for common use? See, here's Paul's response to all of our protests about the story of Pharaoh's heart being changed or the idea that God could do the same to us. His response is, who are you to speak back to God? God owns you, God bought you, God created you, he made you, and he can do with you whatever you want. And then he gives to you this metaphor of pottery, now, now, maybe you're different than me. I, I, I know nothing about pottery. I've never made a, a pot of any kind or anything of clay. And maybe that is your thing. But, but here's what I have made. And maybe some of you have done this. In fact, I think this is a pilgrimage now for any young person who just gets married. Um, the pilgrimage you make when you get married, you get your first apartment and you're trying to furnish it. You, you take the trek as a couple down to Ikea, right? Like this is what you do. And you go and you get all the things from Ikea and then you bring it back and you put it all together. It's a whole process. It's wonderful. It's how marriages start, right? Um, and and, and so, so I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine you're, you're just getting married and you go down to Ikea and you buy all your things. But one of the things you buy is a coffee table. And you bring the coffee table back home to your apartment and you, you take it out of the box and you start to set it up. You throw away the instructions, of course, because who needs those, right? And you just start building. And then at the end, you've got like a rickety coffee table and four extra parts. But you go, let's see how this goes, right? That's the story. Now, I want you to imagine you put your coffee table in the living room. And I want you to imagine you have a family member, a friend, someone walks in the door and they see your coffee table. And they go, oh, you put it there? You say, yeah, I put it there. And they kind of walk to your coffee table and they go, well, why did you put this on top of the coffee table? You should really angle it this way. Maybe you should actually put the coffee table in a different place. And they have all these opinions on your coffee table. Now, here's what you would do. If you had that person walking in and have comments on your coffee table, you would say this, thank you so much for your opinion, but I bought this coffee table. I own this coffee table. I put this coffee table together and I will do whatever I please with this coffee table because it's mine. And God says the same thing to us. God says, I made you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I own you. I created you. I bought you with the price of my son's blood. And I will do whatever I want with your life. I will do whatever I choose in this world. That's what Paul's trying to get us to see. That we don't have a court to appeal to with God. God is able and allowed to do whatever he wants. And here's the point of all of this. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he does that, not accidentally. He doesn't just watch it happen. He chooses to do it. And here's the point of all this. That God chose to have the exodus from Egypt happen in the face of fierce opposition. God chose that. All of the conflict, all of the opposition, all of the angst, all of the anxiety, God chose for that to happen. Because if God can harden Pharaoh's heart, he can also soften it. You can imagine a moment where Moses walks up to Pharaoh's door and goes, knock, 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 Mr. Pharaoh, I have a request. And he goes, how can I help you today? And Moses says, I'd like the people of Israel to go free. And Pharaoh says, that is a great idea. See ya. But that's not what happens. 
God chooses for it to happen in the midst of conflict, in the midst of opposition. And I believe that continues to be the pattern God uses in our lives. See, the first is that opposition is normal. The second thing I want to point out is that opposition is inevitable. It's inevitable. It's coming whether you like it or not. It's coming whether you want it or not. Opposition is inevitable. I'll think about it this way. So later this week, I'll have the opportunity to go down uh, to my brother's house in Santa Ana. Uh, They just had their new baby. I get to go meet a baby. I'm so excited uh, to go meet my nephew. I'm looking forward to that. But because of some scheduling things in my life, I'm not able to leave uh, on a weekday from here until 2.30 in the afternoon heading down to Orange County. Yeah, you're ahead of me, right? Because here's what you know. There's no way I get from here at 2.30 in the afternoon down to Orange County without experiencing mind-numbing, soul-sucking, what is the meaning of existence traffic, right? Like, that's coming my way. And you better believe I've looked at every route I could possibly take. I'll go north, I'll go south, I'll get a boat, I'll go around South America, I'll try that way. Every way I could have thought of it, I've looked for and I haven't been able to find it. And so here's what I have to do when I go down. I just have to anticipate I'm going to be going down to Orange County. I'm going to be going down in traffic, and I'm just going to have to accept it as part of existence, or else I'm just going to be mad for three hours. And here's what we have to do. We have to anticipate and accept that opposition from the world, our flesh, and the devil is part of the experience of following Jesus. Because if you try to find the road or the route where you don't experience opposition, where everything's smooth and everything's nice and nothing ever goes wrong and no one ever stands in your way and you're never misunderstood, you will just be angry and frustrated for the rest of your life. So what we're called to do is to be a people who expect opposition as a normal and inevitable part of obeying God and following Jesus. In fact, I love the way the New Testament says that I have never once in my life seen this verse on a coffee cup. Look at this verse, this promise. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. (laughs) Take that promise to the bank. Like, that's what we're told. It's inevitable. You want to follow after Jesus? You want to be obedient to God? Good. But opposition will come. There will be trouble in this life. See, the question for us is not, how do I make sure I don't face opposition? That'd be like me saying, I'm going to leave on a weekday at 2.30 in the afternoon. How do I find the way of no traffic down to Orange County? It doesn't exist. Here's the question. How will I respond when opposition comes? How will I respond to the fact that opposition is a normal and inevitable part of the Christian life? It goes on this way in verse 4. It says, then I will lay my hand on Egypt. This is Yahweh speaking. With mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Now, if you know the story of the Exodus, the story that we're about to read here, you know that the mighty acts of judgment are these 10 plagues that are about to fall down upon Egypt. They are brutal. They are intense. You would never want to live through even one of them. And yet that's the pain that's coming for the Egyptians. But I'll also point out that there's been pain for the Israelites. For 400 plus years, they've been enslaved. It's pain for the Israelites. It's pain for the Egyptians. It's pain upon pain. And I think for all of us, we need to recognize the simple third observation, that opposition is painful. It's painful. See, as much as I'm going to talk about how God uses opposition, it's a part of his plan. He's going to use it in your life. We don't have to pretend that opposition is easy or it's not deeply painful to our lives. Like, listen, some of you are facing opposition from someone in your life. There's a family member, someone in your business, 
someone in your life who just hates you because you're obedient to God. Because you will not go along with the world, you are being hated for it. You're experiencing opposition from your flesh. You've tried a thousand times to get free from that addiction, and you're still stuck. You're facing opposition from the devil. Your mind just feels racked with these lies and discouragement that he's heaping upon you. And it is deeply painful. I just don't think we as Christians have to pretend that just because opposition is inevitable and normal, it's not painful. So sometimes what we get is a Christian mindset. If I just trust God enough, if I just love him enough, if I just have enough faith, then I'm never gonna suffer in this life. And if that's your belief, I encourage you to go back and read the Bible again because it is promised to us that that pain is coming. And all we can do in the midst of a world where it is painful and we are suffering under the pain of opposition is we become a people who learn to lament, who learn to trust that in the midst of a broken world, God is still good and yet our pain is still real and we bring that before God. And then what we begin to do is we turn a corner where us looking for a painless, easy life where we never suffer is no longer the goal, but the goal is rather obedience to God. This weekend, I think of the following quote from Martin Luther King Jr. as we honor um, his life tomorrow and, and all that he did as imperfect as anything he may have done, just like me or you or any of us may have been, he says these words, and I think this is so well said. He says, the end of life is not to be happy, nor to achieve pleasure or avoid pain, but to do the will of God, come what may. This is what he committed his life toward. I'm gonna do the will of God, come what may, come what opposition, what hatred, what slander, what foul things are said about me, what's done to me, whatever happens to me, come what may, I'm going to obey the will of God. This is what we're called to do in our lives. Not to seek after a happy life or an easy life or a pleasurable life or an avoiding pain or suffering in all circumstances. But in the words of Dr. King, that we would do the will of God, come what may. Verse six says these words. It says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. One of my favorite little things in this story is just this side throw-in of the ages of Moses and Aaron. Moses is 80. Aaron is 83 years old. Isn't it amazing that God does the greatest, most legendary thing in their life that changes the course of world history? Not in their 20s or 30s or 40s, not in their 50s, 60s or 70s, but in their 80s. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing if when you were young, you didn't walk in obedience to God and you feel like I'm past my prime, God can't use me, I'm too old, I'm too far gone, I've retired, God's no longer gonna use me anymore and here's an 80 and an 83 year old and they are about to experience God's power through them like never before. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing Aaron and Moses model for us. That they step into God's will for their life, they do just as the Lord commanded to them in their 80s and they see that God is gonna work through them like never before. See, I think Aaron and Moses in their age and wisdom understand something that we need to understand as well. The opposition is opportunity. Opposition is opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to grow more like Jesus. It's an opportunity for God to show his power through us. For Moses and Aaron, it is an opportunity for God to show himself to be strong and rescue his people. Now they're clear on what this means. They have to walk into the most powerful man in the world in Pharaoh in the most mighty empire that had ever existed in the Egyptian kingdom and empire. And they have to walk in and they know it's gonna be tense and they know it's gonna be hard, but that's part of why they have the opportunity to grow because here's what we know. We know this is true in every area of our life. Growth only happens through tension. 
Growth only happens through tension. If your basic premise of life is, I want to grow, I just never want to be hurting at all, I never want to experience pain or tension or heartache, you'll never actually grow. Growth happens through tension. It happens for the child who's growing up and starts to have growing pains. It happens for the person who wants to get into shape and works their body like never before, and through that tension they grow. It happens to any of you who have gone to college or grad school or gotten a doctorate where you studied deeply and understood, you pushed through the pain of that, and you grew and you understood more. Well, listen, I think this statement on the screen is true for anyone in this room who's married. I think it's true that your marriage grows through tension. See, what happens for a lot of young married folks is they experience tension in their marriage and they think what they're supposed to do is just bail every time there's tension. But actually what begins to happen when you're married for a long time and you have tension, but then you work through that tension as you grow. You grow as a better married couple, a more sanctified couple, a more holy couple, and a more joyful couple because you worked through the tension. Why? Because growth only happens through tension. And the same thing is true with the tension, the opposition we face in this world. The forces that oppose us in the world and the flesh and the devil I'll put it to you three ways. The first is opposition from the world can grow our fear of God. You know what the world wants out of you? The world wants you to fear it more than God. The world wants you to fear the opinions of our culture more than you fear the word of God. And every single time you say, you know what? I might look silly for this. I might look backwards for this. They might make fun of me. They might give me a hard time, but I'm buying into what God says, not what the world says. You grow in your fear of God and you minimize your fear of man. You minimize the fear of the world. That opposition gives you an opportunity to grow. When it comes to our flesh, opposition from our flesh can grow our likeness with God. Every time we resist temptation, we resist the impulse to be angry or lustful or greedy. Every time we resist that impulse coming from inside of us, we become more like Jesus. The scriptures say in Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way we were and yet did not sin. Meaning for his entire life, Jesus was tempted just like you and I were, but he turned away from that sin every single time, which means every single time you turn away from that sin, that desire you have to lust, to be greedy, to be anger, every single time you turn from that, you become a little more like the Son of God. You become more like Jesus. And then finally, opposition from the devil can grow your love for God. Because you know what happens when I recognize the devil is lying to me? accusing me, deceiving me, when I realize the devil is, is discouraging me, I realize how good God actually is. I mentioned earlier, the devil loves to accuse. He loves to say that you're a sinner. You, you can never measure up. You don't deserve God's love. You've sinned too much. You've done nothing to earn God's love. And you know what I want to say in response to the devil every time I start to feel that in my heart? Devil, I know I am a sinner. I know I've fallen short. I know that I've not earned God's love. I know I don't deserve his mercy. But God sent Jesus anyway to live on this earth and die on a cross and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven so that I can know I'm eternally secure with him. That's the gospel. That's what we need to remember. And when I remember this simple truth, that that's what Jesus was sent into the world to do, to love sinners like me, it stirs my love for God. So the opposition is actually an opportunity for me to remember the gospel and remember God's love for me. See, this is the opportunity Moses and Aaron have. And they go in and they confront Pharaoh. And if you don't know how the story goes, let me give you the cliff notes, the, the basic version of the story here. They go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, please let our people go. And Pharaoh goes, I don't think so. And then God sends a plague. And they come back to Pharaoh. They say, would you like to reconsider? And Pharaoh goes, 
No. And so God sends another plague. And they repeat that process 10 times over, over and over and over and over again. Pharaoh hardens his heart because God is hardening his heart. And eventually, Pharaoh lets up. After the 10th plague, the most devastating of all, Pharaoh lets up. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 40. It says, now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Imagine if you were born in the 400th year of slavery in Egypt. That would be your entire life. It would feel like it was never going to end. It would feel like on and on. It's gone for four centuries. It's probably going to go on forever. This is probably my whole life. And then suddenly, one day, you're 30 years old, and you are marching out of Egypt with all of the Lord's people, and you are finally free. What seemed like it would actually go on forever was actually, in fact, temporary. And here's the final observation for this morning. Opposition is temporary. It's temporary. It's just for now. The thing that feels like it's going to go on forever will not actually go on forever. The people leave Egypt and they march out, it says, in their divisions. Now, now here's what I would love to tell you. I would love to tell you that the story goes, they left Egypt and they all got along forever and they went into the promised land and everything was good and they lived happily ever after. But you know the story. It doesn't go like that at all. They leave Egypt and they have problems at the Red Sea. They have problems in the desert. They have problems in the promised land. They're faced by all these different kingdoms who are trying to wipe them out. And then finally, they have to face down the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire. In the New Testament, Christians have to face down the Roman Empire where they're being fed to lions and burned at the stake. There's these empires that are crushing the people of God, opposing the people of God, that are enemies of the people of God. And it continues to this day. To Christians all over the world today, whether it's small little things they're facing in their own lives, whether it's criticism they're facing, or whether it is our brothers and sisters in in persecuted countries who are being jailed and imprisoned and beaten and killed for their faith. And somewhere along the way, you've got to imagine the people of God, maybe even you, are crying out this question. When is this all going to end? The persecution from the world, the the flesh, the devil, this opposition we face, because it seems like once we got out of Egypt, we were out of the frying pan and into the fire. When is it all going to end? And as it turns out, the Bible has an answer to this question. And the answer to the question, when is this all going to end, is not when the church becomes strong enough and we can show everyone how in charge we really are. It turns out the answer to that question isn't once everyone in the world becomes really nice and just lives and let live and then we'll just be fine and they'll leave us alone. It turns out the answer to the question, when is this all going to end according to the Bible, is that God is going to bring about a unique, climactic, decisive end to human history and to the opposition we face. And that's going to come on something the Bible declares and describes as the day of the Lord. On the day of the Lord, that is when we're going to see all of this end. I love the way the scriptures describe it. There's so many verses about it, but Isaiah 2 puts it this way. It says, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. In other words, all these systems that set themselves up against God, all of these people and voices that seem so powerful and wealthy and strong who oppose God and his purposes in this world, they will be brought low on that day. It says, the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. See, there is coming a day where God brings human history to a unique, climactic, and decisive end. 
And on that day, these three enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil will be put to death and put to an end finally. I'll put it three ways as we close. Jesus will one day end the opposition of the world through the second coming. Jesus will return and every eye will see him. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord and every knee will bow. The scriptures say that Jesus will make his enemies like a footstool. They will be under his feet and they will be no more on that day. The second coming will put an end to the rebellion of the world against God. Number two, Jesus will one day end the, the, uh, the opposition of the flesh through the resurrection. Do you know there's coming a day where just like Jesus' body was raised physically, literally, gloriously, eternally from the grave, that your body will be raised physically, gloriously, eternally, and literally from the grave? and you will live for all of eternity without your flesh trying to drag you back down. How beautiful of a thought is that? You will live for all of eternity in a body that is not raging and warring against yourself. That's the beauty of the resurrection. And on that day, the flesh will be put to an end. And then finally, Jesus will one day end the opposition of the devil through the final judgment. Jesus returns, Satan is bound. After a thousand years, he is thrown into the pit, of, the pit of fire, the book of Revelation tells us, and Satan will be no more. He will be judged. That ancient enemy of God who wanted to be God himself will be no more. I love how the apostle Paul puts it. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a promise for us. What a thing to stand upon. This opposition doesn't last forever. It's temporary. It's here for now. It won't be forever. And so the question I want to end with is simply this one. What do we do until the opposition ends? What do we do? Because that's very nice, Brian, that Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things well. But today I've got to go face someone in my family. Tomorrow I've got to go face someone. And the next day I've got to go back to work and face someone who's cruel and oppressive and angry about my faith. So what do we do? It turns out the answer was in the scripture we just read. It turns out the answer was in the story we've been looking at all morning. I'll put you to Exodus chapter seven, verse six. And here's what it says. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Like I love this about Moses and Aaron. They're about to face opposition. They're about to face persecution. They're about to face down Pharaoh, the strongest, most powerful man in the world who hates them. And the answer is they did everything just as the Lord commanded them. So here's the question. What do we do until the opposition ends? Turns out the answer is two words. We obey. We obey the Lord. We listen to God and we do what he says. And whatever God tells us to do, whatever the Holy Spirit is whispering to you in this church service and in this new year, you do it. If he's calling you to read the Bible like never before, do that. Walk in obedience. You say, I've already failed and I missed today. Great. Start over today. You're learning how to fast. You're learning how to pray. Maybe the Lord is calling you to serve in a ministry or to give generously to this church. Maybe just like we talked about earlier with small groups where life change happens in relationship, God has called you to step into this. Don't leave this building today without talking to our small groups ministry. Whatever it is the Lord has called you toward, you walk in obedience to him. See, the opposition until Christ returns isn't gonna go away. But if you set your eyes on the opposition, you set your eyes on the world, you set your eyes on the flesh, you set your eyes on the devil, you're constantly looking, being outraged at the world, you'll never thrive in your faith. But when you set your eyes on obedience, God will give you the strength and the power to face down whatever you are facing, to move forward in faith and move past that obstacle. I'll close with the words of Brother Yoon who says this. He says, we are not called to live by human reason. All that matters is obedience to God's word and is leading in our lives. If God says go, we'll go. If he says stay, we'll stay. When we are in his will, 
we are in the safest place in the world. Moses and Aaron go up against the most powerful empire that has ever existed. And yet in the will of God, they were in the safest place in the world. The same is true for you. And whatever opposition you're facing, whether it be the world or the flesh or the devil, when you walk in obedience to God, you can know that you are quite safe in his hand, in his mercy, in his love, and in his sovereign control over all things. Church, let's walk in obedience to God and let him handle the rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this morning. Thanks for life and breath and thanks for your word. Thanks for the story of Moses and Aaron and their faith in the midst of opposition. Father, I know that there's pain in this room, opposition from people in families and businesses and people in our lives, opposition from the flesh, just that warring inside of us. I know some are just tempted and harassed by the devil and his demons. And I ask God that you would allow us to obey right in the midst of it, that we might trust you, that we might know you, and that we might move forward past this obstacle in faith. And so God, help us in this new year to trust you like never before. Help us obey you and listen to you and do everything you say. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.